the 18th century poet William Blake, I think, captured the heart behind 1 Peter chapter 1 when he wrote these words. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right it should be so, man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. Man was made for joy and woe. Does that resonate with you? Does that make sense? That in the one hand there's moments of great joy and in other moments there's seasons of great woe. That, that may have frankly reflected kind of what your life has been like the last week. Maybe some of you have experienced unbelievable highs and you come to church today rejoicing. Others of you, it's been a very, very hard week or maybe a hard year or maybe a hard life. And I want you to know that 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks into this reality of both joy and woe. That these two things, both happiness and sorrow, actually can coexist. They just, they are in a person's soul. You know, it's interesting. I find that the older I get, the harder it is to answer this question. How are you doing? The reason it's challenging is because, on the one hand, life is full of all kinds of really exciting and hopeful and wonderful things, and at the same time, it's full of things that are just huge burdens and challenges. And you, you know what I'm discovering? I'm discovering that following Jesus is not just about good days and bad days. Following Jesus is more about days filled with good and bad. So part of Peter's aim in writing 1 Peter is to help exiles get their heads around what I just said, trying to get their hearts around what it means to be an exile and to live in a world that is increasingly difficult and challenging. Now, last week, Joe Bartimus served you guys really well, helping you to understand the great mercy of God in your life with spiritual inheritances that are kept imperishable, undefiled, and unfading for you. He asked some questions regarding who is God, who am I, and what is my future, and he served you well in helping to understand what Peter is trying to do and what he's trying to establish. I was with about 300 people from our church at a marriage retreat. We studied the Song of Solomon, five messages, and by the way, if you're curious as to what we talked about and what that sermon series is all about, those are available online. God did some really wonderful things in marriages in our church. I'm really excited about what happened. Prior to Joe's message two weeks ago, I introduced the subject of being an exile to you from 1 Peter chapter one explain to you that Peter is writing to a group of people who are seeing that the culture around them is changing, that they're sort of waking up into this reality of, oh, like I haven't moved, but I have. Like I haven't left my homeland, but I sort of have. And, and Peter aims to anchor these believers in God's divine plan for them, that they are elect exiles. They were chosen for this moment, that they're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, meaning that everything in their life is part of some divine plan. And you need to know that's the same for you. 
Like you're here in this moment, 2016. God didn't make a mistake in putting you in the family that he put you in, the job that you're in, the school room that you're in, the fraternity that you're in. He didn't make a mistake with cancer and the difficult person who's in your family or the neighbor that you just can't quite figure out. God didn't make a mistake in all of those things. He knew exactly what he was doing when he placed you in this moment in church and in world history. The question is, why? Why you? Why now? Why here? Why this? First Peter helps us helps us to get our heads around this reality. And his aim is that when exiles begin to realize, oh, we're exiles, how do they rejoice in that moment? And so my aim today is to try and unpack, how do you rejoice in difficult days? What does it mean to rejoice in difficult days? When you, when you feel the consequences of being in exile, when the, when the challenges come your way, when, when it, you just realize, look, I am, I am not like the rest of the world, and you begin to feel the effects of that, what happens inside of your soul that's a ballast for your emotions? So if you look at the text, you'll see in verse six, that Peter says, in this you rejoice, there's the first word use of the word, and then, if you skip ahead to verse eight, you'll see it again, that you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So clearly, in this short section of 1 Peter, Peter wants us to understand what it means to rejoice. So when you think of rejoice, what words come to mind? Words like happy, glad, pumped, exult. Every single one of those words fit, even pumped, that fits too. The Greek dictionary doesn't have that word listed in it, but it lists words like extreme joy or filled with delight, the sense of, I love this. The word is um, translated as being glad or exulting in something in other places in the Bible. And the aim of this word is to target the emotions. The idea is you are not just joyful, it means like you are straight up happy. I'll give you some examples. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult, there's the word, and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb has come. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Or 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you need to know this word rejoice is different than the word for joy. The word for joy, often we think of it as some sort of deep-seated contentment or a God-centered emotion that, that what I'm dealing with doesn't compare with the beauty of what God is for me. That's, that's how we read James chapter one, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Or 2 Corinthians 6.10, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's the, the idea of joy. But in this text, and this particular word, has something more in mind than just godly endurance. There's more in this word than just calm emotions in the midst of trial or finding purposeful contentment in hardship. Peter's aim 
is to help us truly fight for happiness, to fight for passion, to fight for even delight. And not delight in the suffering per se, but to really delight in the bigger picture of what God is doing in the midst of difficult days. So here's what he aims to do. He aims to take the emotional drain and the emotions of sorrow and to eclipse it with the emotions of what it means to rejoice. Such that sorrowful, suffering people can also be, at the exact same time, happy, singing, yet hurting people. He aims to have these two things, so joy and woe can actually coexist, and that's what Peter is arguing. So here's my question for you. Are you, are you happy today? Are you happy in God's grace? If you were to sort of weigh your emotional balance right now, where are you? I'm not suggesting that the goal of the Christian life is never to be sorrowful. You, if you've been around here long enough, you know that I think that there's a very important place for lament in the life of the believer. I mean, a third of the Psalms are written in a minor key. But what I am saying is that being an exile means that you learn how to lament really, really well, but it also means you know how to be really, really happy. So you know how to be really sad, and you know how to be really happy, and sometimes that's in the exact same day or even in the exact same moment. It means that there is a joy and a passion in your heart which is rooted in the gospel, and that joy, even in suffering, becomes apparent to a watching world. So I'm... I long to see this happen in us because you know the world is watching. The way you navigate the challenges of life, some of you may receive news tomorrow, and how you both mourn and rejoice could be an unbelievable platform for the gospel. So in light of this, that, that Peter is describing here, I think the mingling of joy and woe, how does he encourage believers to rejoice in difficult days? What is it that Peter calls them to do? Here's the first thing. He calls them to rejoice by reflecting on life's trials. In other words, he wants them to take a step back and just think about suffering as a category and to think about the difficulties that they're, they're dealing with. And so he tries to set the context. Now this is the first time that he talks about suffering in the book of First Peter, so it's really important that we listen carefully to what he says, because this, this first lead-in regarding suffering becomes very instructive as to how Peter is going to talk about it. Now, the first thing, in verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. Now, what's the this? Well, the this is what he just talked about in verses 3 to 5, and what was that? He tells them that they are to rejoice, first of all, in the miracle of their conversion, that they were, according to verse three, born again to a living hope, that there's a miracle that's happened in them. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know that miracle happened in you. Like the moment when you understood, maybe as a young child, maybe as a teenager, a college student, maybe a young married person, or maybe just recently, you, you understood, I'm a sinner, I've offended a holy God, and there's an accountability for that, and the fear that you felt, and the overwhelming sense of conviction, that wasn't you. Because all your life, you've been tamping that thing down, and all of a sudden, you're like, I can't stop this anymore. And then when you understood that Jesus died for your sins, and that you could be forgiven by trusting in him, even though you've never seen him, didn't see that it happened, but you believe in it, in that moment, you were gloriously converted, and you need to know that didn't happen just by you. 
You were caused to be born again to a living hope. In this, Peter says, you rejoice. He then goes on in the power of Christ's resurrection. He calls them to rejoice in their heavenly inheritance, in the promise, in verse five, of God's sustaining grace, and in the hope that Jesus is going to come again. And so he he reminds them, these are the things that you are to rejoice in. In short, what he's arguing for here is the hope of the gospel. That those who have trusted in Christ, those who have been rescued from their sins, those who have been granted a righteous standing before their God, should look at life and realize that nothing can compromise this beautiful divine work and there is an eternal life waiting for us. And so what Peter says is the starting point of any trial is to simply realize that this difficulty and this dynamic that I'm dealing with in my culture needs to be set in light of these other spiritual realities. So when I have opportunity, and I do often, to help talk with people who are walking through sticky, challenging cultural dynamics, and they're like, look, what do I do with this? Like, this is really scary. I could either lose my job over this, or someone has said this, do I now step in? And there's all of this understandable fear connected to what's gonna happen if you are to say, um, time out, like I'm a follower of Jesus, I can't do this. The very first thing I say is something like this. Brother, sister, I just want to remind you that no matter what happens in this situation, no matter what they do or what they say or what the consequences are, you're good. Meaning, God's got you, your soul is redeemed, your life is safe in Christ, and nobody can touch you. They can take away your job, they can make fun of you, they can malign you, they can hurt you, they can put you in prison, they can do whatever they want, but at the end of the day, you die, you go with Jesus, you're good, so get that in your head. And that's where we start when it comes to thinking about how to deal with a cultural crisis. I'm good. I mean, I'm not good, but I'm good. (laughs) You understand? Peter reminds them something that we need to constantly remind ourselves about what our future holds, what God has promised. Friends, we need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves and to one another. Secondly, after highlighting sort of the bigness of God's plan, in this you rejoice, he then shrinks down the lens in regards to suffering, though now for a little while. The purpose here is not to say that the trial will be short, because some of you have dealt with a lifetime of a particular trial. But rather, what he's trying to do is to reset the spiritual reality of what they're looking at. To shrink the trial by broadening their spiritual horizon. For instance, I was telling someone recently in one of these sort of very difficult dynamics, I said to this brother, listen, 100 million years from now, you will see the pressure of this moment very differently. You feel it so strongly right now, but 100 years from now, we're in the new heaven and the new earth, and we're at the feet of Jesus, we'll talk about this moment, and it will feel so light and so momentary, it won't seem like anything. So all the pressure that you feel right now, just remember, 100 million years from now, meet me, mm, let's see, I wanna go to Anchorage, Alaska. Meet me in Anchorage, Alaska, and we'll talk about it. If that's available in the new heaven and the new earth. The next phrase, if necessary, what does that mean? Again, he's, he's having them remember, reflect on these trials, if necessary. He, he, what that means is that all of this is a part of God's plan for them, that, 
that Peter had anchored their sufferings in the foreknowledge of God. He had anchored their, their pain in what it meant for them to be caused to be born again, that salvation was a part of God's plan, and so is their suffering. These suffering exiles are experiencing the challenges of their life not because of some fate or because of some impersonal force of nature. Rather, they are experiencing the very will of God for their lives. Now, I can't, I can't explain all how that works. I can't connect all the dots. But what I do know is that somehow, some way, in the midst of all of the difficulties and pain of life, God has a plan that he is weaving through your life. Let me show you a passage in 1 Peter. Peter says this, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's a huge verse. They suffer according to God's will. They need to entrust themselves to their creator who's faithful and then keep doing good. In this you rejoice, verse six, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, he says you have been grieved. I'm so grateful that word's in my Bible because the word means to be in pain, it means to be sorry, it means to be distressed. So he says rejoice and then here's grief. And, and why is that? Because I think Peter knows what you know, and that is grief and joy, or grief and rejoicing, or being sad and still rejoicing, still can coexist in the same human heart. This is what I think it means to be in exile. It means this ongoing tension of, on the one hand, dealing with hardship, and at the same time, rejoicing that hard isn't bad. Somebody asked me recently, I've been thinking about this, they asked me, how are you doing? And I responded by saying, you know, I'm really sad and I'm really happy. I'm filled with joy about a bunch of stuff and I'm really sad about some other things. And they looked at me, they didn't know what to do with it. They were like, <laughs> awesome, you know, good for you. So that's what, because I'm trying to figure out being in exile means you're honest in both categories, and it's not that you always feel 50% um, joy and 50% sorrow, but it means that these two things, they, they exist simultaneously in the same soul. And then Peter says various trials. You have been grieved by various trials. This, again, this is another just really helpful word because it identifies that part of the challenge of the exiled life is not just the reality of the difficulties, but their variety. Suffering comes in clusters. My grandmother was a little superstitious. She always said, everything comes in threes. I never knew what that meant. But because she was old, I never argued with her about it. I think what she meant is this. Typically, things don't just happen in isolated moments. They, 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 they happen one, two, three. But for me, it feels like at times, suffering comes not in threes. Oh, I wish it comes in like a half a dozen, or it comes in fives or sixes. And that's where some of you are. It's not just a challenge with one kid. It's two children or three, it's, or it's two grown children and two grandchildren. It's, 
Not just one car breaks down, but both break down. It's, it's not just that you've got challenges in your marriage, you've got challenges in marriage and with your best friend. It's not just that you've, you're, you're dealing with one sin issue, you're dealing with multiple layers of different sin issues. It's the fact that various trials come, and you can feel very easily overwhelmed and wonder, how in the world am I going to do this? You know what that means? It means that if you are here this morning and you feel like you're on an emotional roller coaster, can I just tell you, that's how most followers of Jesus feel. Like one moment you're happy, then you're sad, you sing a song, you're so thrilled with God's goodness, and then you think about this problem, you're like, ah, and you go back and forth and back and forth, and you feel like spiritually like your heart is divided, which is why the psalmist said, unite my heart to fear your name. Last little word, you've been grieved by various trials. Those of you who grew up with an old translation, the King James Version, will know that this translation, it may sound familiar to you, it went like this, manifold temptations. It's actually not a bad translation because the word trial can mean testing, it can mean trial, and it can also mean a temptation. And about half the time, in, at least in the ESV, when the word for here for trial is used, it's actually translated as temptation. So the idea in terms of the broad range of this meaning is that the challenges of life are not only grievous, they're not only in a variety of things, but they also have a pretty wide range of how they happen. It could be just hard circumstances. It could be something that's connected directly to some form of, of, of persecution or opposition. Or it can also just be something that relates to the brokenness of the world, either in us or around us. And what Peter says is exiles live in a world that's really hard, and yet they are to rejoice. They live in a world that's really painful and really difficult, and yet they're to set their minds on other things. They are to truly weep with those who weep, but they are also to rejoice with those who rejoice. They are to have both sorrow and joy in the same soul. That's what it means to be an exile. He seems to want to broaden our horizons here on the front end. So do you have a category for following Jesus where it isn't either or, it's not either joy or sorrow? It may be that part of the reason why you're spiritually and emotionally unbalanced is because God has used suffering to show you how emotionally dependent you are on things going the way you expected things to go. And he's pulled the rug out from underneath you, and it's surprising what happens when that rug gets pulled out and how much of our self-sufficiency becomes evident. And the question is, will you look at that and think, this is really hard, but this is doing something in my life that I just, I don't want, but I do. You may be here and you're not a Christian yet, but it may be that the circumstances of your life are lining up so such that God has begun to sovereignly pull the rug out from underneath you in order to show you that you are not doing a very good job running your own life. Relationships keep getting blown up. Sin issues keep surfacing. Oh, you keep trying, but the reality is there's no change. You know why? Because you keep bringing the same you to the problem every single time. And what you need is something that you can't fix, which is a change of your heart. Enter Jesus, who comes to save us from ourselves 
to give us a new heart, to, and to fill us by the Spirit so that we love new things, desire different things, and long for him in ways that we're, are unbelievably miraculous. And I hope today that you would see that and say, you know what, I want that. And you might see that all these circumstances have been God's way of getting your attention. Don't, don't think for a moment it is an accident that you're here, hearing this message today in light of everything that's happened to you. God may be drawing you to himself, calling you and saying, come, come to me. If you're tired and weary, come to Jesus and find rest. So we're called to rejoice as we reflect on the trials. Here's the second thing. The text tells us that we come to rejoice as we see refinement in our lives. Verse seven says, all this is happening so that, when you see the little words like so that, when you're looking and reading or studying the Bible, those little words are really important because they link what's been said previously to now what is going to come. And this now shows us the effect. What is the effect? And the effect of all of this is so that, or here's the goal, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that trials produce a faith that is tested, that is genuine, that is proven, and that is valuable. Peter is saying that suffering has a capacity to be a crucible for faith such that it tests whether or not that faith is genuine. That's why another translation renders it not as the test of genuineness, but as the proof of your faith. The idea is this, and even if you don't fully agree with the Bible, this resonates with just what you understand about life. Anybody can say they believe anything. You can just say, oh, I believe, I, I, I trust in Jesus. You can say that. But trials prove if that's legit or not. You can just say, oh, I've trusted Christ. But trials prove if that faith is real. You see, one of the reasons that Christianity is in the world is to proclaim the good news. So Christianity was never meant to be a private faith. That's why um, if you you're raised in church, you may have sung a song that goes something like this. This little light of mine, you know this one? Sing along. I'm gonna let it shine. Okay, that's enough. So, (laughs) second verse. Hide it, ready? Hide it under a bushel. I'm gonna let it shine. You know where that comes from? It comes from Matthew chapter five. It's actually in the Bible, it's good. Kid songs should have Bible connections to them. And the idea is this, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. Why? Because the gospel was meant to be proclaimed. Salvation was not just meant to be something that gets you into heaven and forgives you of your sins. You keep quiet, no one knows about it. No, 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 no. The gospel was meant to be proclaimed, it was meant to be lived, it was meant to be out there. That's why baptism is so important. Baptism doesn't create salvation, but baptism is the first step where you demonstrate publicly and you say, I'm all in. 
I believe in him, he's my savior, watch this, this happened to me. I was dead and buried and I'm alive. I've been raised with Christ. Baptism declares, it goes public where you say, I follow Jesus. And you need to know that that's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You have declared with your mouth, I believe. Testing demonstrates whether or not you really believe that or whether you just talk religious smack talk with people. Your faith matters when it's costly, when it is inconvenient, when it is hard or painful. But it's not just that it proves it to others, here's the deal, this text indicates that it also proves to us that it's real. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What that's referring to is on judgment day that your faith is really going to be verified that indeed it is real. And what Peter is saying is that this tested genuineness prepares you and validates that what you believe is real. And here's why that's important. Because in the midst of a trial, you are you might be tempted to think, how do I know if my faith is gonna hold? How do I know if I really believe this stuff? I'm clinging to my belief by my fingertips, and how do, how do, I, how do I know that what I believe is real and is genuine? And the beautiful thing about testing and trial is that as you walk through it, it shows you the refinement that takes place in your soul and it confirms that yes, this faith will result in praise and glory and revelation, at the revelation, praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that I do indeed love him. Testing validates that you love him. Last week I finished reading to Savannah the Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. There's a scene at the end of the book that nearly moved me to tears as I was reading it to her. After Aslan's surprising return and the subduing of the world, all the creatures line up before him, and as they process to him in single file, they look him in the face, and if they love him, they move to the right, and if they hate him, they move to the left. As I was reading that, I was thinking, how do I know I love you? Like, when I stand before you, you know me. How do I know I love you? And you know one of the ways that I know I love him? Because through every trial and difficulty, my heart, even in the bruising of hard providence, has resonated with I still love Jesus. Or as Job said, Job said, yea, though he slay me, I will bless him. And I say that not because of some strength in me. I know like God put that love there, an indomitable, sovereign love that won't go away. Or the hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And that's what God does. He seals the heart. And so refinement verifies that your faith is not just something that you say, it's something that you really live and love. 
C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf, a deaf world. Malcolm Mudridge said this, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. So for those of you who are here today and you are in the middle of affliction, can I just remind you that you are in a beautiful training ground for your soul and a verification that what you believe is real. And I know you're shedding tears, but while you're shedding tears, please anchor your soul to the beautiful reality that somehow, some way, this is going to create more love, not less love, in my heart for Jesus. Finally, rejoice as you are reassured in your faith. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Love that. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen to me. There are some of you that the whole reason why you're here today is because of what I'm going to say next. And God has orchestrated all the events of your week or the last month for this particular moment in this particular text. And verse eight essentially says, you haven't seen Christ and yet you love him. Peter saw him and loved him. They hadn't seen him and loved him. Why does he put that in there? He puts it in there to commend them, to show them something has happened in you. In the midst of all the trials and difficulties that you're dealing with, something miraculous happened in your soul. You haven't seen Christ. You weren't there at the crucifixion. You heard of him, and in hearing of him, you believed in him, and what's more, you believed in him, and you loved him. Why do you love him? Answer, because you belong to God. That's why. And why is that important? Because as you walk through trials, you need to be assured that God loves you and is keeping you, and in so doing, Peter is reassuring them of God's kindness and of their love for God, which was miraculous. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What does that mean? It means that when you walk through trials or difficulty, when you walk through seasons where you feel like the, 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 your self-sufficiency has been pummeled out of you, when it feels as though you have, your, your soul has given way, It means that in those moments, you've tasted and seen that the Lord sustains you. You went to bed saying, God, please just, I don't want to wake up. And you woke up, and your heart flooded with peace and assurance that God's mercies are new every morning. You got in the car and you thought, I can't do this today. You turned on the radio and there was this song that just just penetrated right into your heart. And in that moment, you're driving to work, tears are in your eyes, and you're thinking, you love me. You care for me. You got this. 
You see a beautiful sunrise coming over the distance and you see the beauty which then reflects in your heart and you realize, God, you are real and my trial is not going to crush me and you have tasted and seen of the inexpressible joy and the tasting of the glory of God that met you in a car that was inside of your bedroom that was meeting you wherever you were to assure you, I am still on the throne. And the effect of this is you are obtaining even now the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, which, by the way, doesn't mean a future obtaining of salvation. It means right now, meaning right now you're being saved. You are obtaining. You are right now receiving salvation. It wasn't just something for the future. It wasn't something just for the past, which it both is past and future. But right now you are receiving the outcome. You are obtaining the outcome of your faith, namely the salvation of your soul. It means all these challenges and all these pains are actually serving to create more love in your heart for Jesus, not less. Oh, it's different joy. It's, it's not some sort of immature or veneer happiness. It means that I am sorrowful and yet I know that you've got me and you can see the refinement that's taking place inside of your soul. But you may say, well, wait a minute, Mark. You don't know the, the background of my last week. Like there were times when I said, I don't know if I've, I even believe in this thing anymore. I don't, I don't know if I can trust the Lord. I had all these doubts and I was angry and I, I said things to the Lord that I shouldn't have said. And that's all true, but you're here. Who got you up? Who caused you to come here? You're singing the song, and in some moment as we worship together in the midst of the brokenness of your heart, there's this little glimmer that says, that's true. And yet your heart is so still filled with grief, but that little glimmer is evidence that God is still at work. He has not left you, he hasn't abandoned you, and you haven't left or abandoned him either, even though you've thought about it and wondered, how am I gonna make it all the way to the end? And Peter is encouraging these believers that part of the way that you rejoice is by looking at the refinement in your life and saying, somehow, some way, I actually love you more, although it is a painful love, but I love you more. So, can you thank the Lord today that even in trial, he hasn't left you? Can you say, I'm, 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 I'm really sad, and yet I'm also somehow rejoicing and I'm happy? I, I can see the beauty of what God is doing. I don't mean you're chipper, but it means that there is this sense within your soul, like, I'm glad. This is really hard, but I'm happy. This is really tough, but I am filled with joy. This last week I was back in Holland, Michigan. I spoke at a prayer breakfast for some civic leaders in the city where I pastored for a number of years. And whenever I go back to Holland, which hasn't been that often, I like to stop by a cemetery where I used to walk and pray. And in that cemetery is a little grave where our sweet little girl is laid. And I stood over top of that grave thinking about how I long for the resurrection and how long the new heaven and the new earth is gonna be. And whenever I go back, there's different emotions every year. So I've been 12 years since that moment. And I went for a walk around the cemetery and something, I was thinking about this text, something was happening inside of my soul that was really different. I walked around, I was really sad. And yet I was really happy. I thought of how the Lord had written this story in my life and how he had used it to shape me. would have never wanted this. If I had to choose, no, th 
thank you. And yet when I look at it, I see the plan. I see part of what he's doing. And I can see how I'm a different man, a different husband, a different father, a different pastor. I preach First Peter 1 different today because of that grave in Grasscup Cemetery in Holland, Michigan. As I'm walking around the cemetery, my heart is saying, God, this was the most difficult thing you've ever sent me, and it's been the best thing you've ever done for me. And I don't know how that works, but all I know is life is really hard, but it is not bad. Like, this is really tough, but you're awesome, and I thank you. And my heart is both weeping and I'm humming melodies as I'm walking around. And to me, beloved, that is what it means to be in exile. You live in a world, and at one level you say, man, this is really hard, but God is really good. I don't know what we're going to do, but God's in control. I'm really sad, and yet I'm rejoicing in the goodness of what God means to me because somehow this trial has proven over and over that he loves me and I love him. And that's unbelievable. Let's pray. Precious Lord, would you make these words in 1 Peter to be marker words in our lives that affirm your goodness and affirm that there's not been a single pain that's been wasted. Pray for brothers and sisters here today who need to be reminded that you are absolutely working all these things out for their good. I pray for those who are struggling to cling to the conflicting reality of both joy and woe. So would you meet with us now? And would you make these truths, not just things we've heard, but things that will last with us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.